A few months ago, in January, we did an episode about one woman's quest to develop a cure for her son's rare disease. Amber Freed has twins, a girl named Riley and a boy named Maxwell. Riley is healthy, but her brother Maxwell was born with a rare genetic disorder discovered so recently it doesn't have a proper name. Amber has done everything she can to help her son. She became a self-taught expert in genetic disorders. She raised more than a million dollars. And she convinced established scientists to take on her son's case and develop a treatment using cutting-edge gene therapy technology. And when we last spoke, a treatment for Maxwell seemed within reach. Amber had coordinated with scientists in China to send genetically engineered mice to the U.S., where they would be the first test subjects for a potential treatment. And the mice were breeding, and we were just about to begin experiments on those mice. Were you optimistic about the future at that point? So optimistic. Nothing could hold me back. I was sure my son would be treated this year. And then the pandemic hit. University research labs mostly shut down, and efforts to help kids like Maxwell have been put on pause. I was just so heartbroken because we have made record-breaking progress. I never anticipated or thought something like this could happen, but also it was a state of devastation like I felt when Maxwell was originally diagnosed that lightning hit us. The unthinkable happened. And here, lightning has hit again, a black swan event for the world that no one could have anticipated. Today on the show, scientists have responded to the coronavirus pandemic with unprecedented speed to find a treatment or a vaccine. But non-COVID research has come to a halt, and some patients are running out of time. I'm Ariel Zimros. This is Reset. If you didn't get a chance to listen to our earlier episode on Maxwell... Here's a quick explanation of his disease. There are proteins in the human brain that allow our cells to send and receive signals. And the blueprint for one of these proteins, the thing that allows that protein to be produced, is a gene called SLC6A1. It's a mouthful, but that's what it's called. Most people have two working copies of that gene— Maxwell, though, has only one working copy. As a result, the delicate balance of signals in Maxwell's brain is out of whack. Amber describes this like a pipe. With two working copies of the gene, the pipe is wide open. Information goes through. In Maxwell's case, the pipe is half-clogged. And this clogged pipe in Maxwell's brain causes a range of symptoms— Maxwell has a movement disorder like Parkinson's disease, and he's nonverbal, meaning that despite having just turned three, he doesn't speak. But the worst is yet to come, because Maxwell will likely soon begin to have debilitating seizures. 
Between the ages of three and four, which Maxwell just turned three, children with SLC6A1 develop a debilitating form of epilepsy. Essentially, they start having seizures and they just drop. It doesn't matter where they are. They just drop and seize. And with repeated seizure activity, your brain eventually stops being able to recover. It's like having a heart attack every single day. The treatment that Amber was trying to get developed was intended to prevent those seizures from happening. And it's pretty simple, actually. Maxwell is missing a working gene, but... You can replace it. So what that means for Maxwell is that scientists put a working copy of the gene inside a virus that doesn't make humans sick. That virus goes into your spinal fluid and up to your brain. It stacks working copies of the gene on top of non-working copies of the gene. And it's there forever. And it literally unplugs the pipe. Maxwell's disorder has already delayed his development. But Amber says that this treatment could stop his symptoms from getting a lot worse. It would entirely stop the progression of the disease, and he would most likely have the ability to catch up. He's lost time, and every single day matters for us. But going forward, he would have the ability to learn. And because he hasn't developed the debilitating epilepsy, no permanent brain damage has been done. There's just one catch, though. Even though this type of treatment has been developed for patients with rare genetic disorders similar to Maxwell's, it's never been done before on a patient with SLC6A1. And that's where the mice come in. They were genetically modified to have the mouse version of Maxwell's disease. And this year, labs in the U.S. were planning on testing that virus-based gene therapy on those mice. That was the state of things when the pandemic hit the U.S., Amber didn't know how much it would upend her family's life. No, no, it totally took me off guard. I think it's important to point out that I spend 80 hours a week working on this rare disease. And so when everyone started talking about COVID-19, I really equated it to a flu bug or swine flu or SARS. Never in my wildest dreams could I have imagined or prepared for where I'm sitting now? When Amber said, where I'm sitting now, she meant that literally. Last week, her family moved from their home outside of Denver to a small town in Louisiana. They're there so Maxwell will have access to therapy. He usually has 12 therapy sessions a week in Colorado. But all that went away with Colorado's social distancing rules. We found a great rate on an Airbnb, and we will be here until Colorado stabilizes. And so Maxwell can maintain some sort of a routine and keep advancing, hopefully, because he was regressing in Colorado. The biggest shock of all, though, has been the news that social distancing applies to scientists working on new treatments. I never thought in my wildest dreams that scientists would be considered non-essential. And they were. By nature, there's not very many scientists in a lab. It's a very introverted profession. You're in a room alone, already wearing a mask, already wearing goggles. So 
it, it just never occurred to me that they wouldn't be able to work. But that's exactly what happened. Did you believe it when they first told you that? Like, what was your reaction? No, I didn't. I thought they would still go in. And I think the reason I thought they would still go in is because they know how important the work they're doing is and the aftermath and the the consequences of what would happen to SLC 6A1 patients if the work was not performed. They haven't advanced anything This is such a large blow. It is going to take us a very long time to recover. That's time Maxwell doesn't have to spare. Every day, he becomes more likely to experience those powerful seizures that could cause brain damage. And Amber is worried they could kill him in his sleep. Every single day, I wake up and and rush to his crib and look at him. Um, I don't allow even a pillow in his crib because I'm afraid I wouldn't. I sleep in the same room with him, but I'm afraid I wouldn't wake up if something happened and he can't have anything in the crib that could possibly smother him. And it's the most horrible, anxiety-filled life you could leave of just waiting for your child to decline. For now, she's trying to make the passage of time as special as possible. We just celebrated the twins' third birthday on March 27th. We held a gigantic social distancing party in the front yard because this very well could be his last healthy birthday where Riley can look at pictures and say, I had a twin brother. And we had a great birthday, and I wanted the pictures to be incredible, and I didn't want one sad face in the crowd. And so we made hundreds of cupcakes, put it on next door. I handed out the cupcakes with a selfie stick to all of our neighbors. I blew up hundreds of balloons, put them all all over the fence, decorated the trees with balloons, made a big poster for our fence that said, Hunk three times, the twins are three. Advertised our party with chalk on the sidewalk for every neighbor to come by. And I also put every season's yard decoration in our front yard all at once. It was Christmas, Easter, 4th of July. Wow. All at once. And I forgot the best part. And I saved this to be a surprise for my husband. But I rented a $300 Peppa the Pig costume and made my husband dress up as the pig and stand on the sidewalk and wave to all of our neighbors as they drove past. I have no idea what next year is going to look like. And I think that the pandemic really brought that to light because when I spoke to you in January, I was optimistic and I said, he's going to be okay. And I never stopped to think about the scenario where he would not be. And the the pandemic brought it to light that everything has stopped. And the chance of things not working out is very great now, and we don't know what the future has ahead.
Amber Freed is still trying to get her son's treatment back on track as soon as possible. She's been on the phone with scientists, making plans to expedite the process. And the second these labs reopen, I am closer to most of our labs in Louisiana than I was in Denver, and I will drive and just knock on doors and windows and point (laughs) and say, come on, let's get going. It takes a worldwide catastrophe, yeah, to slow this, this poor woman down. This is Dan Vergano, science reporter at BuzzFeed News. He's written about Maxwell and other kids with rare diseases. After the break, we'll talk about how Maxwell isn't the only patient hurt by lab shutdowns. Thousands of clinical trials have been suspended because of the pandemic. This is Reset. Dan Vergano, science reporter at BuzzFeed News. When the labs eventually reopen, if a substantial amount of time has passed by then, will researchers working on Maxwell's case be able to just pick things back up where they left off with the mice? Will everything be ready for that? So in his case, the mice, you know, they age out and die. So they have to just keep them uh, alive and hope that the colony doesn't suffer some disaster. And these are um, a mouse colony with a genetic illness. And not only that, they have to redo all the checking out that they were doing uh, to validate them. You can't just say, okay, well, we validated them in January and now it's uh, September, so they're, they're ready to go. You have to do all that work all over again. So everything gets slowed down more than it has to be. Uh, the researchers have to verify that their uh, you know treatment essentially hasn't spoiled while they were keeping it in a refrigerator. Uh, and that takes time and you have to really be serious about this because you're talking about injecting it into children. This this genuinely sets the clock back. It, yeah, moves it back. And it'll depend on each treatment, how much it gets moved back and the circumstances of each one. I mean, some will be more, some will be less, but you're talking months to years. Okay, so what's the takeaway for how things have turned out for Amber and Maxwell? It's a small portrait of, like, what a lot of people are suffering. It really brings it home to you, just like what a disaster this is for, for the world. That I did worry with Amber, you know, like there's no guarantee with the research that she's doing that, that it would work. You know, they might have done it in the mice and found out that the treatment they had wasn't quite right. So they'd have to go back to square one and, you know, breed different mice or try a different treatment. And there would be months long setbacks, you know, that would have prevented Maxwell from getting the treatment in his third year. But, yeah, this is this is way beyond the scope of individual setbacks in labs. This is, you know, a setback for everyone. Do we know how many kids are in the same situation as Maxwell where they can't go ahead with developing treatments? We really don't know. There were uh, hundreds of clinical trials for treatments like this running right now, according to the NIH. Those are all suspended, as far as I can tell, or mostly suspended. If each one of those trials was going to enroll a handful of uh, children, you can do the math. It's thousands. But even beyond them, there are thousands and thousands of of kids out there with this sort of situation because, you know, rare diseases, it adds up. You know, it's a few kids here and there, but there's thousands of these rare diseases. So let's talk a little bit about the disruption that these these children, these parents have have sort of encountered because of the pandemic. I want to really break it down. Why exactly did researchers have to stop all work on, on Maxwell's treatment? So essentially, the, the governors in their states declared all, you know, non-essential work 
verboten and universities shut down as well. You know, we, we're stopping uh, lab research, we're stopping uh, classes, everything. And so that swept up all the personnel who are maintaining and performing the research on this. It's just a blanket order. And this is seen as non-essential? Right. Our conception of essential and non-essential has been very short term, right? Uh, and understandably so. Essential is what does it take to feed the people in the next week? And uh, everyone else is non-essential, right? Uh, mm -hmm. But we're learning that over time, there's going to be long-term essential things that we didn't consider. And this is this is probably one of them. And, you know, the things that we call non-essential are going to turn out to not getting done is going to turn out to affect a lot of people's lives badly. And and this is part of a larger disruption to lab work because of the pandemic, right? Do, do we know the scale of that disruption? Is there a way to quantify that? There is a way to quantify it, but nobody's attempted it yet because it's so large. Mm -hmm. uh, I asked NIH, which is the, you know, 800-pound gorilla of biomedical research, and they say they don't have good numbers yet. It's not really up to them to shut down the labs. Universities and governors do it, but they see it as, as a huge cost. Uh, there's 28 billion plus dollars, I think, given to uh, grants from NIH uh, for biomedical research in this country, and they're seeing uh, effects everywhere. That's a lot of money, a lot of labs that aren't working right now, but you can't do lab work by phone. You know, you have to be in the lab with other people, and the problem is huge. Everybody agrees. We don't quite have our arms around it, but uh, NIH's external research people say they think that it's the rule, not the exception for, for biomedical research. Okay, so that's the lab work that's developing new treatments. What about making sure these treatments are safe? Have clinical trials been affected by this? It's clear that clinical trial enrollment is way down. It's hard to get people into a new treatment for diabetes when they can't come to the hospital. Hmm. Uh, the measure that we talked to uh, one group was down 65%. They say it might be even worse when they come up with new statistics uh, in terms of enrollment in these trials stopping. So we're not even just talking about rare diseases here. We're talking about things like diabetes. Oh, this is all diseases. This is everything. This is cardiology. This is uh, uh, cancer treatments. You know, you name it, the whole gamut. Uh, cancer treatments for uh, people in end-stage cancer, not down as much because, you know, these are people who are facing terminal illnesses. And so they're going into these things anyways, taking the, the risk of coronavirus because really they don't have very many options. But every sort of uh, lifestyle-associated disease you know, your heart disease, uh, your diabetes, your things like that, they're significantly impacted in terms of enrolling new volunteers. And the clinical trials, experimental trials to see if these drugs work or not run on human volunteers. So this has put most medical research that is not related to coronavirus on hold. Uh, NIH has a clinical trials registry that anybody can look at. And when we did the story, more than 2,000 clinical trials, large clinical trials were listed as suspended. Uh, each one of those clinical trials might have hundreds to thousands of people in it. It's interesting because the pandemic has put a huge spotlight on how science works. Everyone wants to know when we'll have a vaccine for the virus that causes COVID-19 or, or whether a new treatment might work. But the reality is that the pandemic has also hobbled all of this research. Are researchers worried about the long-term impacts that this might have? Tremendously. Every other researcher that I interview uh, has a story like, well, usually I study bacteria that cause other illnesses, but now I have to make tests in my lab because we can't keep our health workers safe. So mm. that's what I'm doing. And science runs on graduate students and postdocs who are trying to advance their careers to research. And that's all been stopped. Like, how do you graduate if you can't do that last set of experiments? You know, you can't move on to your next position that's been promised to you because, A, the university's closed. 
and B, your, your, your research was stopped that it was supposed to get you that next job. The, the whole generation of young scientists that are around the labs right now are threatened in terms of their careers. It's all going to be blighted uh, by this. And the, the research enterprises, you know, shuddering to a halt. We're going to see essentially a, you know, a one to three year uh, delay in all this research, getting it started up again. And we don't know what the shape of the medical research enterprise is going to be after this. You know, it might uh, turn in a different direction uh, in terms of dealing with pandemics and things like that. That's all up in the air. You know, the universities that basically host our biomedical research enterprise, if you can't have students there in a the fall, can you ask research assistants to show up in labs and do research anyways? You know, if it's not safe to go to classes, they're supposed to be getting an education. They're not workers, right? Not to mention what this pandemic has in terms of an impact for funding for science. Right. Uh, yeah, that's a... That's a whole that's other a really thing. That's a interesting question. Yeah, that's a big one. You know, NIH research agenda is shaped by political interest, right? Which is why we have a National Cancer Institute and not a National Rare Disease Institute, right? Right. So, uh, you know, will we have a National Pandemic Institute? Will that take funding? Will more funding go to science? I mean, typically, if you look back at the 9-11 experience, you would expect that, you know, there's going to be a Department of Pandemic Preparedness at the end of all this, that we'll have a huge budget. Will that take uh, researchers away from researching rare diseases and into public health? And maybe that's a good thing for society overall, but a bad thing for these kids. And meanwhile, at least right now, these kids are running out of time. That's the bottom line. The clock is ticking. And for these kids, it's, it's a disaster to have any kind of halt to this research. Dan Vergano is a science reporter at BuzzFeed News. If you want to learn more about Maxwell and Amber, check out our show notes, where we'll post a link to our previous episode and to Dan's reporting. I'm Ariel Zimros, and this is Reset. We publish episodes three times a week, on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays. So if you haven't already, subscribe to the pod. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or in your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the show. If you want to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at ADRS. You can also reach the Reset team by emailing reset at vox.com. We'll be back on Sunday. Later, nerds.